Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, details about a vaccine passport for international travel could be revealed today. It looks like it's going to be some kind of QR code built into a health card that'll include the Government of Canada wordmark. The Prime Minister consults with opposition leaders about what they'd like to see when MPs return to the House of Commons. I outline some of our priorities in the short term. These priorities would indicate to us a willingness on the part of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals to work together. And so I outlined some of the things that I want to see that would show a willingness to work together. Conservatives speak out against the mandatory vaccination policy announced by the House. I think that those that do not get vaccinations are infringing on my rights uh, and the rights of others to, to live. It's Thursday, October 21st. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. We're joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. We're expecting the Prime Minister to announce later this morning more details about a proof of vaccination system for international travel. This is something, obviously, that a lot of people have been have been waiting for, and there there are a lot of details to this. There are uh, there are many jurisdictions that need to be involved in this. So, uh, what what are you expecting to hear from the government on that today? been in the works for a long, long time. It looks like it's going to be some kind of QR code built into a health card um, that'll include the Government of Canada wordmark, and you'll be able to use it for international travel. You know, I think we're we're kind of ahead of the game here. I don't think any country has, has got such a, a recognised vaccine passport at the moment. So quite how it's going to work, we'll, we'll hear from the Prime Minister this morning, but... Um, you know, obviously everybody wants to get get travelling and this will be a means of doing it. It does kind of beg the question as to why the federal government has not been in charge of doing something similar domestically. I mean, as we travelled across the country and on the federal election campaign, we found out that, for example, British Columbia's vaccine passport did not work in Quebec and, and vice versa. So... Um, I think the federal government tried to avoid criticism by, by getting involved in that, although it, it did make a, a funding announcement. But finally, I guess we're going to have we're going to have a recognised passport or a card which shows that you've you've been double vaccinated, which presumably will apply uh, will be applicable domestically as well as internationally. Right. Um, another big decision coming up for the government uh, is is what to do about the benefits that have been extended to individuals and businesses in this country for the last 19 months now. Um, the the wage subsidy, the the uh, the benefit that's going to individuals, um, those things are due to run out, and there's some debate over whether they should be extended. Um, what are you hearing about that? Well, I think the government is lukewarm about. Um extending the Canada Recovery Benefit, which is to, to individuals. I mean, I think there's pretty clear evidence that it's affected the labour market and that provinces like Ontario are crying out for workers. And if you're being paid whatever it is, it is now, it was $2,000, it's less now per month. But if you're being paid to, to do nothing and, and you're, that is an incentive or a disincentive to working and maybe an incentive to staying home. So I think the government, <clears throat> government has come around to the idea that that's not a good thing at this stage in the economic recovery, and we need people to get back to work. It, it seems to be less convinced about ending the, the wage subsidy. It's already clear that they're going to give some kind of targeted relief to 
targeted relief to their fellow citizens if they're in need. But I think there is evidence, there's a new study on the on the wage subsidy that suggests that it was too profligate, it was too scattergun, and it doesn't pass any kind of cost-benefit analysis. Uh, you know, there have been reports for for uh, for many months about abuse of the system. Uh, you know, one one example came up with the Royal Ottawa Golf Club received a million dollars uh, in 2020, and, and the, at the end of that year, it added 782,000 to its operating surplus. You know, so it clearly didn't need that money. Certainly, didn't need a million dollars. The Financial Post last year revealed there were 68 listed companies who were who were accepting the the, the wage subsidy, but, subsidy, but were also paying dividends. So I think that uh, when it was when it was designed, it was not really, you know, it it, it didn't address fixed costs. It was, it was designed to stop businesses closing and to keep workers close to their employers. But, you know, the, the analysis I've seen suggests that it didn't fi- address fixed costs like rents that actually do determine whether you're going to close your business. It didn't recognize that the subsidy, that a subsidy directed towards payroll could be shifted for for other purposes. And it wasn't targeted to the margins where, where it could be most effective. It was sprinkled very generously to such an extent that, that any business that could show a loss of revenue no matter how big or small, didn't even need to show that it was related to, to the pandemic. So I think that it's, it's cost-effectiveness is highly questionable, and it should be ended. I don't think there's any doubt that the, the program as it is should be ended, and if there's going to be any future relief for, for specific industries, it should be very targeted and, uh, and uh, time-limited. All right. Let's turn to the resumption of Parliament, which is going to happen in about a month from now. And um, the Prime Minister met yesterday with uh, with Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the official opposition, the Conservative Party, with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and with Green Party parliamentary leader Elizabeth May. Um, what did you hear about the, the tone of the, of the discussion of those meetings? And, and given that it's a minority parliament, once again, um, how do you think the Prime Minister is going to work with the opposition parties. How is he going to handle things uh, once Parliament resumes? Well, I think these meetings are, are, are merely done for effect. I'm pretty sure they don't uh, produce anything of substance, although obviously the, the meetings with uh, Yves-Francois Blachette of the of the Bloc and of, with Jagmeet Singh, and even with Elizabeth May, might be more constructive than the one with Aaron O'Toole. Although even there, I mean, I've been talking to Liberals who are saying, look, Nobody can afford to have another another election, and we are going to screw those parties that that uh, while they agree with us, don't pass our legislation. You know, there were so there were a number of instances at the end of the last year, which I think was was one of the causes of us having an election on conversion therapy, on the broadcasting bill, and other legislation that, that didn't pass before the end of that parliament. Right, and I think there is a feeling inside the Liberal Party that. Uh, they hold all the cards, and they're going to make sure that this legislation passes, and anybody who gets in the way will get steamrolled, which is not exactly the um, the message that, uh, that Trudeau was sending out by having these conversations in the first place. Yeah, and uh, there, there's another issue, of course, about the resumption of Parliament that's very interesting, and that is um, the, the potential for MPs to be required to be vaccinated in order to appear in the House, and Conservatives have have spoken out against that. Um, 
What do you think about that whole issue? Uh, there, obviously, there's the potential for there to be hybrid meetings, some people in person, some people uh, virtually. Um, but we've spoken before about the fact that there is an issue of, of privilege for MPs, that they they must be allowed to to vote in the House of Commons and can't be stopped from doing that. So... Um, and then there's the politics of all of it. Aaron O'Toole, after his meeting with the prime minister yesterday, said uh, that he had asked the prime minister, prime minister to stop politicizing vaccines. So there's a there's a lot there on that one issue about whether MPs should be fully vaccinated. Right. And, and you know, if we were about to enter a, a new era of kumbaya with all the parties sitting around holding hands, uh, this is an example of the fact that that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think... I think that MPs should be vaccinated. You know, if, as political leaders, they should be setting, setting an example. But the way this was done, it was highly politicised. It was pushed through by the Board of Internal Economy, which is the, the, the body of MPs responsible for financial and administrative matters around the, House, around the House of Commons. Yet this is clearly a major constitutional matter, telling MPs have just been re-elected or elected that they can't sit in the House of Commons is not a job for a body that normally deals deals with human resources issues. It is a job, in fact, according to the uh, former law counsel for the House of Commons, who I spoke to yesterday, Steve Chaplin, he was the legal counsel for the House of Commons for 15 years, and he said the only body that can determine whether an MP should enjoy unimpeded access is the House itself. This issue should have been introduced as a motion into the House of Commons and voted on by all MPs. It cannot be voted on by a body of these nine who sit on the, on the Board of Internal Economy, uh, including the, the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rota, uh, four Liberals, one Bach, one NDP, two Conservatives. You know, clearly the Bloc, the Liberals and the NDP are on side with mandatory vaccination and push this thing through. And I think that that uh, is not the way it should be done. We have a constitution and it doesn't work like this. All right. We'll see what happens as um, we continue to march towards uh, the resumption of Parliament. The Cabinet, of course, is going to be unveiled next week. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. People right now are having a hard time, and it's getting harder because the cost of groceries is going up, the cost of housing is going up, and we need to see some steps to address to address the, the rising cost of, of living and, and the inflation. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues we shouldn't expect meaningful relief from high prices anytime soon. The Star writes, We can cite the numerous reasons why prices have been on a tear. The surprise is that the disruption has been so prolonged and that the forecast is so troubling. Predictions of a passing, pandemic-fueled storm have proved wishfully wrong while choked-up supply chains have proved frequently intractable. What's the bottom line? Consumers shouldn't expect meaningful price relief soon. At National News Watch, Ken Polk argues the Liberals need a stronger economic story. Polk writes, The government's progressive agenda may seem out of step in a contracting economy, when the existential concerns may be more related to keeping jobs and paying bills than with addressing worthy social and environmental priorities. It would be prudent for the Liberals to start doing a better job of communicating a narrative that connects their platform with jobs and growth. 
This will be challenging, given the transformational nature of their agenda. That is why they have to get their story straight and out soon. At Policy Magazine, Philippe Lagasse argues the new cabinet will simply be a refresh of the same government that's been in office since 2015. Lagasse writes, The life of Canadian governments is tied to the Prime Minister. So the Trudeau government began when he was sworn in on November 4th, 2015. And it will only end when he resigns or is dismissed by the Governor-General. Since 2015, various ministers have come and gone. But the keystone to the whole thing, the Prime Minister, has been the same person. Accordingly, when the new cabinet is presented on Tuesday, it will have a different composition, but the same status from a constitutional standpoint. In the Globe and Mail, Conrad Yakabuski argues the House of Commons redistribution proposal is a time bomb for Justin Trudeau. Yakabuski writes, The prospect of Quebec losing a seat in the House has politicians there up in arms. Expect the Legault government, backed by Quebec's opposition parties and the Bloc Québécois, to put pressure on Justin Trudeau to protect the province's current seat count. The Prime Minister owes nothing to Legault, who openly campaigned against the federal Liberals in last month's election campaign. But on this issue at least, Trudeau will likely not be able to resist accommodating him. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will visit a healthcare facility and hold a news conference in Ottawa. Defence Minister Harjit Sajid is taking part in the NATO Defence Minister's meeting in Brussels. And Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchette will hold a news conference in Ottawa. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, October 21st. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.